The Descent into the Maelstrom is a short story by the acclaimed author Edgar Allan Poe. And in the story, Edgar Allan Poe tells the story of a young fisherman who works between these small islands in Norway. Now, it's a lucrative but also a dangerous business. The reason it's lucrative is that no one else fishes in that area, which is also the reason why it's dangerous, is because there are these whirlpools at which you can risk getting sucked into. And one day, the fishermen and their crew are out working in this, again, lucrative but dangerous area when a storm hits, a storm that the narrator calls the most terrible hurricane that ever came out of the heavens. And this hurricane pulls their ship into one of these whirlpools. And as the ship passes over the precipice of the whirlpool, they realize that there's likely no way of going back, that this may in fact mean their doom. And slowly their ship goes around the whirlpool, down, 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 close to the center. And at one point, the narrator, this fisherman, grabs a hold of a water barrel and jumps overboard. And he hopes that because this water barrel and himself are lighter than the ship, that it's going to pull him in towards the center more slowly than the ship would go. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. The narrator watches as his ship with all of the crew not only go around the whirlpool, but down, 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 close to the center, until ultimately they're all pulled into the center and down under the water. Down, down, down. This fisherman, in both awe and fear, wonders how much time he has left and whether he soon will be pulled into the center. You can hear some of this awe and fear in his words. He says this, as I felt the sickening sweep of the descent, I had instinctively tightened my hold upon the barrel and closed my eyes. For some seconds, I dared not open them while I expected instant destruction and wondered that I was not already in my death struggles with the water. But moment after moment elapsed. I still lived. Then all of a sudden, with a jerking motion, the whirlpool slowly stops spinning. And the center of the whirlpool rises up, up, up. And as a sailor clings to his water barrel, he too goes up, up, up with the water. And eventually he's on the top and he's pulled safely with the barrel towards the shore to his salvation and the saving of his life. It's ultimately this one decision that saved the sailor's life, the fisherman's life. His decision to cling with his whole life to this water barrel. We're in a sermon series here at 10th on the book of Jonah called A Frustrated Life. Where we're taking an honest look at our reluctance to trust God. But also God's extravagant grace that's offered to surprising people and in surprising places. And today we're going to take a look at the second chapter of Jonah, probably the most famous chapter, not only in the book of Jonah, but one of the most famous and well-known passages in all of the Bible. It's the well-known story of Jonah and the great fish. 
Before I read the passage, let me bring us back up to speed to where we are so far. Jonah is a prophet. He's been called by God to go to the people of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. The problem is, the Assyrians and the people of Nineveh are the sworn enemies of Israel. They are one of the cruelest, most capricious empires of his time and up to that point. And he's been asked by God to go with a message not only of judgment for their cruelty and violence, but also an invitation to repentance and receive God's mercy. And Jonah knows that God is in fact merciful. And if they repent, that God will offer mercy and forgiveness. And Jonah, as we find out later in the story, doesn't want God to offer forgiveness and mercy. So rather than going to the people of Nineveh, he literally runs away from God and his calling. And he goes literally in the opposite direction. He goes towards the city called Tarshish, which is in modern southern Spain. It's on his way when he's on a ship that their ship with this crew hits a storm. And Jonah knows that the storm is God trying to get his attention, trying to get him to stop running away and instead turn back towards God and his calling. But Jonah wants nothing to do with it. So the storm continues. And in a way that subverts our expectations, it's Jonah, this prophet, someone who should want to follow God, who actually is the one who's running away from God and ends up, as we find out, being quite selfish, even risking the lives of the other sailors for his own decision to run away from God. And on the other hand, we have these sailors who we're told don't know the God of Israel. And yet they're the ones who end up running towards God, turning towards God, and are kind and generous to Jonah. And eventually Jonah realizes that there's no way that he can escape the storm. There's no way that he can escape God. And the only way forward is for him to be thrown overboard. And that's what happens. Jonah is thrown overboard. And chapter one ends with these words. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 2, or you can follow along on the screen with me. We're going to read all of Jonah 2. It's a pretty short chapter, but we're going to read the whole thing together. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled about me. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again on your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. 
Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish. It vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Chapter 2 is a poetic prayer offered by Jonah towards God from the belly of this great fish. And as I've just read and we've heard Jonah 2, we may have a few questions. I can think of two off the top of my head. The first one is, what exactly swallows Jonah? Perhaps many of us, maybe hearing this story as children or in retellings of it, heard that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Yet here we hear that he's swallowed by a fish. Well, in the original language, it does in fact say fish or something as some interpreters would say, a a giant sea monster. So whether that is in fact a fish, a sea monster, or a whale, we don't exactly know what it was that swallowed Jonah. And really in the end, it doesn't really matter. Some kind of creature from the sea swallowed Jonah and took him down, down, down. The second question you may be asking is, did this really happen? Was Jonah actually swallowed by a fish and taken down into the ocean and survive? Another way of asking this question would be, how do we read the book of Jonah? I think it's fair to say there are generally two schools of thought around how we can read the book of Jonah. The first one is that it's a kind of satirical comedy, a little bit like a Shakespearean play. Jonah was almost definitely a real historical person. Jonah is referenced by Jesus. He's also referenced in the Old Testament as a bad prophet, not just in the book of Jonah, but in other places as well. So it's almost definite that the person of Jonah existed. But according to this satirical comedy perspective, the the narrator, the, the writer of the book of Jonah, used this historical character and built a story around them. Knowing that Jonah was historically a bad prophet, it kind of fits to use him here as a bad prophet as well. And the purpose is to build this story around Jonah in order not to emphasize what actually happened, but to accentuate the unexpectedness of God's grace and how God's grace can be found by unexpected people and in unexpected places. And the narrator of the book of Jonah really subverts a lot of the first reader's expectations and our own expectations. Jonah the prophet is the one who runs away from God and is pretty selfish and cowardly. It's the Ninevites who, in the end, spoiler alert, are the ones who end up repenting and turning to God. And even these sailors that we just read about in chapter one, even though apparently they don't know the God of Israel, they eventually turn towards him and are kind and generous to Jonah. So Jonah subverts a lot of our expectations. So that's the first perspective, this satirical comedy perspective. The second view would be a more historical approach. That Jonah not only existed historically, but the story is told more as a historical story of something that happened. 
And how it relates to Jonah and the fish is that the first perspective would say that, well, Jonah didn't really historically get swallowed by a whale. It's more of a medical metaphor meant as a part of the story that's being told throughout Jonah. Jonah going down, 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 and God raising him up, up, up. And the second perspective would say that Jonah was in fact swallowed by this great fish or whatever it was, whale. I'll just say great fish. And we don't have a lot of stories of people who were swallowed by giant fish or whales, but we do have a couple. One of them was more recent, back in 2011, of a man who was swallowed by this whale off the coast of Massachusetts. You can see his picture here. He survived. He was only in the whale for about 40 seconds, but again, he survived before it spit him back up. I can think of another story quite a while back of a man named James Barley, who apparently was swallowed by a sperm whale and lived in that sperm whale for three days and three nights until eventually some of his friends found this dead sperm whale ashore. They opened it up and to their surprise found James still alive inside three days and three nights later. Apparently, James's tombstone says, James Bartley, a modern-day Jonah. So there are these two perspectives, the more historical approach and the satirical comedy approach. Whichever approach you take, I think two notes are important. One, throughout this series, there are preachers who follow both of those perspectives or each of those two different perspectives. So there are pastors and preachers who know and love God and are faithful to him who approach this story of Jonah from both the satirical comedy perspective or the historical approach. A second thing to note is that regardless of what approach that we take, it's important to note that really the the big idea of the book of Jonah is the same. And the big idea is this. God's grace is extravagant. It's offered to surprising people and in surprising places. And today we're going to look at one of those surprising places, namely that Jonah experiences God's mercy as he travels down, 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 ultimately hitting rock bottom. The book of Jonah is beautifully written. And it's written in a way to emphasize some of the main themes from the book. And one of those main themes is the theme of both up and down. Four times in chapter one, we're told that Jonah goes down, 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 down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down onto the boat, which is sailed for Tarshish. He goes down below the deck, and then he lay down. And then again, three times in chapter two, we hear that he goes down into the depths, into the deep, down towards the root of the mountains. And this repetition of the down, down, down is not only meant to emphasize the fact that Jonah is literally going down, but metaphorically he's going down as well. He's going down personally. He's going down spiritually. He's been running away from God, away from his calling as a prophet towards the people of Nineveh. 
Jonah is going down, down, down. Until ultimately, Jonah literally hits rock bottom. In verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, Jonah says, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. It's another way of saying Jonah has literally come to the bottom of the ocean, the roots of the mountains. There's no other rock bottom that you can go to. Physically, Jonah has hit rock bottom. Personally, spiritually, perhaps even emotionally as well, Jonah feels like he has hit rock bottom. Rock bottom isn't a place that we typically want to go. It's a place that we may fear to go. But rock bottom, those down, down, down places in our life, can also be a great opportunity. My first year of college was an incredibly difficult one for me. After graduating from high school, before going off to UBC, I did a year at a local college here in the area. And I did that in order to spend time with some close friends. Those close friends and I on most weekends, and to be honest, a lot of weeknights as well, would go out and do a lot of heavy drinking and partying. It was a lifestyle that we had begun in high school, and now with our newfound freedoms, we had accentuated even more. But over time, I found that this lifestyle was taking a significant toll on me personally. I also found this lifestyle increasingly meaningless and fleeting. And I was wondering whether this was actually a direction that I wanted to continue. Fortunately, during that year, my dad had recommended me to take some first-year philosophy courses. And partly through the questions that are asked in the books that I was reading, I began to ask some significant questions about myself, about the meaning of life, and about my purpose and direction. And I remember reading a book by the philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre, who's an atheist, and I was reading this book really about the meaninglessness of life. And something, quite honestly, didn't sit well with me, especially as I learned more about his life. Jean-Paul Sartre is the one who famously said, hell is other people. (laughs) And something, again, just really didn't sit right with this idea of the meaninglessness of life. And during that season, even though nothing changed outwardly for me, I became increasingly insular and unhappy. And I wondered whether my worldview and my actions were a significant contributor to my unhappiness and my personal insulation. And it was in this down, 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 rock bottom place where I started to open myself to new ideas that I never had before. Spiritually, I would have said that I was agnostic. And I was extremely critical of organized religion, especially Christianity. But it was in this rock bottom place that I began to open myself to new ideas and perspectives that I hadn't previously considered. I remember thinking back to a close friend who I deeply admired. And I wondered, maybe I should start to explore this faith thing. It seemed to do really well for them. So I called on my friend and asked, hey, could I come with you to church? Their dad was a pastor, and so I actually ended up going with their whole family to church for the first time. And I stayed. And I kept pursuing this faith church thing for quite a while, eventually even taking the Alpha course 
which is a popular intro to Christianity course. And this continued until September 2005 when I was baptized, a moment that changed my whole life. For me, rock bottom was a place where I opened myself to perspectives that I had never considered before. In fact, I remember an honest conversation as I began to slowly give my life to God and attend church and say I was a follower of Jesus, had this honest conversation with a different close friend, one of those friends who I had previously been spending a lot of time with. I remember him saying in a moment of just sheer honesty, I never thought you'd be the kind of person who would find God. To be honest, I actually never did as well. And yet our down, 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 rock bottom places can be a place where even though we may have so far been running away from God, turning away from him, or just too busy with other things to turn and to recognize that he's already there, can be a place where we, like Jonah, stop running. And we turn back towards God and find him and his extravagant grace. It was at my rock bottom where I found and experienced God's extravagant love and grace in a very surprising place. One that ultimately changed the trajectory of my whole life. Honestly, it changed my life for the better as well. So these down, down, down rock bottom places can actually be a place of opportunity. where We stop running, we open ourselves towards God's extravagant grace and love. And while we may never be thrown overboard off of a ship like Jonah was, swallowed by a whale, the thing that's so beautiful about Jonah too is it's written in a way to invite us to see ourselves as Jonah. Even though, again, we may not be thrown overboard, we can relate to some of, some of the language that Jonah uses. Jonah says this, All your waves and breakers swept over me. It's that feeling of being continually knocked over and bombarded by things that are outside of yourself. Or as one commentator said, it's the same feeling of being stepped on by someone repeatedly. Maybe you can relate to that. Not necessarily having physical waves beat you again and again, but experiences or emotionally or in different ways, that feeling of being come at again and again and again and that you just can't escape it. Or like someone is stepping over you, maybe a boss or a colleague. Whatever it is, it's a relatable experience, whether we're in the water, at work, or somewhere else. Later in verse 5, Jonah says, the engulfing waters threaten me. It's that feeling of being totally overwhelmed, literally over your head. For Jonah, he's over his head in the ocean with water. Yet we too can feel overwhelmed and over our heads in different places. With our to-do lists, at work, with the expectations of other people among other places as well. I'm sure you can relate to that feeling of being totally overwhelmed and over your head. I know I have. In verse 4, Jonah says, I've been banished from your sight. Jonah fears and worries that he's been banished in his relationship with God. He fears losing that important relationship. I could say that probably most of us have felt that feeling as well. 
the actual experience or the fear of losing an important relationship in our lives. And then again, in verse five, he says, the deep surrounded me. It's that feeling of being completely surrounded by hostile forces, that something threatens us, perhaps even that we're in constant conflict. And again, I know that I felt in that place of being constantly threatened and feeling like I'm surrounded. There's no way that I can escape conflicts or an experience with someone or something else. That feeling of being surrounded by something hostile other than yourself. So again, even though the book of Jonah is about a man thrown overboard off a ship and swallowed by a great fish, which takes him down into the depths of the sea, it invites us to see ourselves as Jonah and that we too can have these down, 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 even rock bottom experiences. Jonah is also about us. A couple of weeks ago, I preached at our Mount Pleasant site. And I asked the question, where do you feel dry and withered? Where do you long for God to bring refreshment and new life? Or another way of maybe saying that same question is, where do you feel like you've been traveling down, 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 and maybe I feel like you've hit rock bottom? And where do you long for God to bring you back up? And I invited people to send answers in virtually, and we were able to populate the screen with those answers live. And at each of the sites that I preached at, the number one place where people felt dry and withered, they felt like they'd been traveling down, 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 was their work. People felt like their workplace was one of those rock-bottom, difficult, dark places for them. They longed to be brought back up. For many people, too, named their family or their home situation, and some even named the difficulty in their prayer life or their relationship with God and the longing to be refreshed in those places. Wherever we are, at work, at home, even in our relationship with God, that we too can experience those down, 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 rock bottom moments. And the invitation is to see and experience God's extravagant grace, even in those places. Whether they feel small but significant, or large and life-changing, God invites us to see his extravagant grace in those surprising places. Gerald Sitzer is an author. He's also a professor at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. A number of years ago, I read his book called A Grace Disguised. And in the book, he shares an experience that he had where his family was traveling to learn more about First Nations culture in America. And after spending the whole day there, they traveled back in their minivan. His mom, his wife, and his two eldest children were in the van. And as they were driving home, Gerald shares that a drunk driver driving 85 miles an hour crossed over the center line, crashing into their minivan. He said that in that crash, three generations of women in his family were lost. Gerald shares honestly that he struggled so much in that season, especially those first few months. He says this, the initial deluge of loss slowly gave way over the next months to the steady seepage of pain that comes when grief, like floodwaters, refusing to subside, finds every crack and crevice of the human spirit to enter and erode. 
I thought that I was going to lose my mind. I was overwhelmed with depression. The foundation of my life was close to caving in. And Gerald even shares that during that season, he wrestled with God. But during that season, Gerald had a dream one night. He says that in that dream, he and his surviving children were standing by the highway watching the accident as it happened from the outside. This is what he said. We witnessed the violence, the pandemonium and the death, just as it had been experienced in real life. And suddenly, a beautiful light enveloped the scene. It illuminated everything. The light forced us to see in greater detail the destruction of the accident. But it also enabled us to see the presence of God in that place. I knew in that moment that God was there at the accident. God was there to welcome our loved ones into heaven. And God was there to comfort us. God was there to send those of us who survived in a new direction. Even in a place like personal, emotional, and spiritual rock bottom, as Gerald expressed, we can see and experience God's extravagant grace. That God doesn't stand away from our suffering and our deep, dark, depressed moments. But in fact, we find his light bursting forth in those places. Last week, Dan Whitehead at a number of our sites shared this image. The image of a, a statue called Christ of the Abyss. And he shared one that had been sunk in the Mediterranean Sea. But what he didn't say is there are actually three of them around the globe, and the one here that you can see is in Key Largo, Florida. One of the things that I love about this image, Christ of the Abyss, is first not just that Christ is reaching out, as he often is in different statues, but he's reaching up. That Christ is actually already dark in the deep abyss, awaiting us, anticipating us as we go down, 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 to meet him, that Christ doesn't stand far away from the depths, from the darkness, and from the abyss, but that he's already there, waiting for us to bring his light. The other thing that I love is that with this statue in particular in Key Largo, Florida, he already has coral and algae growing on him, showing that he's been there for a while. That Christ, the man of suffering, doesn't stand distant and aloof from our suffering, from our deep, deep rock-bottom moments, but in fact is already there, standing alongside us. That 2,000 years ago, Christ showed that there was no place that he would not go to stand alongside us in our suffering. And he experienced the full depth of suffering himself. He experienced alienation and loss and even death on a cross. And for three days and three nights, he, like Jonah, sat in the deep depths. Three days and three nights later, something incredible came. That like Jonah, he was brought forth into new life and light burst forth as he was delivered from death through resurrection and into new life. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul calls this the first fruit of the resurrection. 
And the first fruit implies that there is more fruit to come. More fruit to come. More resurrection to come. More new life awaiting to burst forth even from the darkest depths of our lives. That even though we may travel down, 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 that Christ longs to bring us up, up, up. In our opening story, the descent into the maelstrom, the thing that saved the sailor was his decision to cling to a water barrel, which ultimately saved him from being pulled into the whirlpool, but also helped him when he was down, down, down near the bottom to come back up, up, up towards the top and deliver him safely to the shore. And so too, like Jonah and like the sailor in the story, we are invited to cling to something as well, namely to Christ. Even in our darkest depths, in our rock bottom moments, as we descend down, down, down to cling to Christ, who like the image of Christ of the abyss is already there, who is accustomed to suffering and longing to bring light and hope into that place, but also promises to bring us up, up, up. That as he was the first fruits of the resurrection, that there is more fruit to come. And that we too, as we cling to Christ, can experience new life, new hope, and new resurrection in and through him. That even in our darkest depths, that we can cling to Christ as he promises one day, to bring us back up, up, up to shore. There are no places where Christ would not descend to stand alongside us. And there are no depths too dark and too deep for Christ to rescue us and eventually to bring us up, 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 back into new life. I want to close with prayer and read a passage from Psalm 139. A passage where David shares something similar to what we've been reading in, in Jonah. That there is nowhere where we could go that would separate us from the love of Christ and to which he would not descend to find us there. I invite you now to close your eyes and to come into a posture of prayer as I read Psalm 139. And read verses 7 through 10. Says David, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jesus, we thank you that there are, are no depths too deep or too dark where you would not find us. Where could we go from your spirit? The answer is nowhere. That you find us, you bring your light, you bring your hope and joy even in our deep, deep rock bottom places. And even more, you promise to bring us up, up, up into new life as the further fruits of resurrection, new life, and new hope burst forth. So Jesus, may we experience your love and your extravagant grace, even in the surprising place of our deep, dark moments and spaces. 
And may you deliver us up, up, up to new life. Amen.